Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I want to talk about a William Wordsworth poem. Now, I know, I know I've done Wordsworth on the podcast before. I'll be straight with you. I recently did a three-part TV documentary about Wordsworth and his friend Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And I'm so Wordsworthed up from doing that, so shot through with Wordsworthian enthusiasm that I've got to lance that boil. And so I'm asking you to help me to get some of this Wordsworth out of my system. I'm going to talk about a poem that I didn't talk about on that show. So feel free to go away and watch all three episodes and we won't be doubling up. The poem I want to talk about is called Resolution and Independence. Yeah, it's not as strict as it sounds. It's one of Wordsworth's encounter poems. He used to meet people as he walked the hundreds and thousands of miles that he walked in order to compose and to be inspired to write poetry. And he met the leech gatherer. He actually literally met the leech gatherer, which was the man who features in this poem. More of him later. He met him in 1800. I have actually seen the diary entry in his sister's diary, which says, oh yeah, we met this leech gatherer guy. And then he wrote the poem in 1802. Wordsworth's style was to let things marinate and think about it, think about it, think about it, think about it. Okay. So this features what you might call a one of Wordsworth's spots of time. That was his word for it, his phrase for it. For him, a spot of time is something that happens that seems relatively non-significant. And then he goes away and chews it over and sort of places it in context and examines all the implications and significances of it. And then he turns it into a poem. Okay, so resolution and independence. I don't know about you, man, am I looking forward to this. Here goes. There was a roaring, this is, this is the beginning of the poem. I'm not going to read the whole poem because it's long, but I'm going to read what I would call the best bits. There was a roaring in the wind all night. The rain came heavily and fell in floods. But now the sun is rising calm and bright. The birds are singing in the distant woods. So immediately we start with the idea that things can get dark and scary, but then the sun comes, the birds sing, and things are okay again. That's a sort of template for the way life is. Early on, there's a fabulous description that I want to run by you. Wordsworth used to get really miffed about people writing so-called nature poetry that wasn't really about real nature. It was often taking phrases and descriptions from poets from classical Greece and Rome and talking about sylvan glades and the azure vault of the sky. And he liked to really, really study nature 
Wordsworth and and write about it very accurately and in a well-observed kind of way. And so he writes about a hare running in a in a in a field. And I think this is fantastic. Listen. The hare is running races in her mirth, in her mirth, in a sort of humour, a joy. The hare is running races in her mirth, and with her feet she from the plashy earth. Oh, I like plashy. Plashy earth. With every footstep. Come on. Focus, Frank. The hare is running races in her mirth, and with her feet she from the plashy earth raises a mist that, glittering in the sun, runs with her all the way wherever she doth run. And this is nature observed. It's that the way the water from wet grass flies up behind a running hare, a sort of vapour trail. As she disturbs, I'm calling a she. Oh yeah, he calls a she. That's where I've got it from. The vapor trail, so the sort of mist spangled by the sun that appears behind her. That is something that is actually seen in nature. You just know and watched it, and it's not taken from elsewhere. I once this is stretching it to tell you this story, but I was in Japan and I visited. A manga comic book artist who did the Captain Tsubasa football manga comic, which I'd read several times. And I met the artist and he was in this small house with about four other guys. And he drew Captain Tsubasa, the footballer, and a few of the other main players. And these guys did the background. They did the crowd and all that. And I remember being slightly disappointed that he didn't do it all. And this is about that sort of blocking in nature instead of it being you as an individual experiencing it and then expressing that experience. So the speaker... Is still, um, and just because Wordsworth met a leech gatherer, that doesn't make Wordsworth the speaker of the poem. I know I say this every time. I heard the skylark warbling in the sky, and I bethought me of the playful hare. So he remembers that, that hare that he saw running around. Even such a happy child of earth am I. Even as these blissful creatures do I fare. Far from the world I walk, and from all care. So he's happy guy, far from the world. So he's out in nature, on his own, really lapping it up. But there may come another day to me, solitude, pain of heart, distress and poverty. Suddenly the breaks go on the sunshine thinking and he starts thinking yeah but what about if another day I feel really terrible and destitute and sad and there's there's an old Mark Twain quote which says there's been a lot of terrible things in my life and most of them didn't happen in other words don't worry about things in the future because you might be worrying about an event that never takes place and that seems to be happening here with this um with the speaker of the poem. And then he goes on a real 
a sort of a uh, reverie of how poets suffer, how tough it is, and how tragic to be a poet. And we know that the speaker is a poet because in the midst of this stanza, now he says, we poets. So even if it's not Wordsworth, the character he's created to tell this story is a poet, and we're supposed to know that. I thought of Chatterton, the marvellous boy, the sleepless soul that perished in his pride. Chatterton was a, a teenager who wrote brilliant poetry, but poetry he, he claimed he discovered and, and, and it was, I think, medieval or something of that nature. And he was kind of exposed as a fraud, but the poetry was still really, really good. But it seems he took a, an overdose, is the most commonly held view. And there's a very famous painting, The Death of Chatterton, it's commonly known as, with him, classic artist, classic romantic poet, lying ashen-faced on a bed in, in a sort of desperately poor garret or attic, if you prefer. OK, that's the first tragic poet he's ticked off. What else is he thinking of? Of him who walked in glory and in joy, following his plough along the mountainside. So that would be Robert Burns, always spoken of with his plough, the, uh, the farmer. Robert Burns also died young, penniless, etc. So he's enjoying here the sort of tragic nature of being a poet. By our own spirits are we deified, so we are turned into gods, if you like. We poets in our youth beginning gladness, but thereof come in the end despondency and madness. So that's how it is for poets. He was so happy before, he thought he was like that hare scampering around. But now he realises he is one of these tragic figures and it's sort of cooler isn't it? it's more exciting to be troubled than it is to be happy you know if you're in a relationship and you're really in love and the person loves you and it's all going really well and you tell your friends about it it's so boring for them but if you're going out with someone who was turned up with a samurai sword at three in the morning screaming outside your flat they cannot get enough of it and so this is it's self-dramatisation, it's melodrama. Yes, I too am one of those tragic poets. I'm quite happy today, but I bet tomorrow I will be as unhappy as they are. Then there seems to be some supernatural intervention to make him think again. Here we go. Now, whether it were by peculiar grace, a leading from above... A something given. Yet it befell that in this lonely place, when I with these untoward thoughts had striven, beside a pool, bare to the eye of heaven, so no trees around it or anything, beside this pool, I saw a man before me unawares, the oldest man he seemed, that ever wore grey hairs. So he's totally on his own. He was happy. Then he thought, oh, but tragedy, tragedy is inevitably my lot because I am a poet. 
And then he sees this very, very old man beside a, a pool. And he compares him to a sort of natural phenomenon. Get this. As a huge stone is sometimes seen to lie couched on the bald top of an eminence. So when you see a massive stone on the top of a cliff or a mountain, wonder to all who do the same as spy by what means it could thither come and whence. So everyone thinks, wow, did that get there? That's amazing. So that it seems a thing endued with sense, like a sea beast crawled forth, that on a shelf of rock or sand reposeth there to sun itself. So he's, he's imposing meaning on one of these stones that you see high up and wonder how did it get there. He's saying, oh, it's, it's like it was some sort of sea beast that crawled up there. And he's comparing this man who's come out of nowhere on this lonely day. There he suddenly appeared. Such seemed this man, not all alive nor dead, nor all asleep in his extreme old age. His body was bent double, feet and head coming together in life's pilgrimage. So he is bending over so that his feet and his head are getting closer and closer, as if some dire constraint of pain or rage, of sickness felt by him in times long past, a more than human weight upon his frame had cast. So it seems like he has been bent double by rage or sickness or whatever it is. He must have suffered, that's what the speaker thinks. Ah, yes, another suffering individual like me. Like when uh, King Lear finds the pretending to be crazy, Tom of Bedlam, and says, what happens? And he says something like, what happened to you? What Was it your daughters? Because that's what's happened to Lear. And he thinks everyone is experiencing what he's experiencing. Subjectivity is at the centre of romantic poetry. And when I say romantic poetry, I mean romantic with a capital R, as in the romantic movement. Do Google it, please. The speaker, the poet... It's all about what they think, what they feel. So although Wordsworth wrote a lot of these so-called encounter poems where he met people on the road and often he had met real people, uh, people that you wouldn't normally write poetry about, perhaps the great unnoticed, if you like. He sees them and talks about them, but often he talks more about the effect they have on him than them themselves. Speaking still of this old man, himself he propped limbs, body and pale face upon a long grey staff of shaven wood. So he's got this stick sort of holding him up. And still as I drew near with gentle pace upon the margin of that moorish flood, the flooded moor, motionless as a cloud the old man stood that heareth not the loud winds when they call, and moveth altogether, if it move at all. So he's comparing the old man to a cloud 
that seems to be unmoved by life's storms, if you like. So seemingly un unsubstantial cloud, but still fixed, stoical, like this man seems to be. So the man hasn't even spoke yet, but the, the poet has decided some basic elements of his nature. The poet is already writing the old man, if you like, before he has actually spoken to him. The old man is already becoming a device in the poem. At length, himself unsettling, he the pond stirred with his staff and fixedly did look upon the muddy water which he conned, conned as in sort of studied, as if he had been reading in a book and now a stranger's privilege I took, and drawing to his side to him did say, This morning gives us promise of a glorious day. So Wordsworth makes the speaker open by talking about the weather. And I suppose the poem opens by talking about the weather. So the speaker is going to talk to the old man. So we think now we find out the truth of this old bent figure that he's seen by the pool, and now we'll get his side of the story. Well, good luck with that. A gentle answer did the old man make in courteous speech, which forth he slowly drew, and him with further words I thus bespake. What occupation do you there pursue? This is a lonesome place for one like you. Airy replied, a flash of mild surprise broke from the sable orbs of his yet vivid eyes. Sable, black, he's black-eyed. You notice that he says a gentle answer did the old man make in courteous speech, which forth he slowly drew. We don't get any direct quotation from the old man. We get it from the speaker, the poet again. What occupation do you there pursue? This is a lonesome place for one like you. So he, um, it's like the old man, yeah, he said this, but this is what I said. He told that to these waters he had come to gather leeches, being old and poor. In case you don't know, leeches, they basically stick to you and suck your blood. And, and doctors used to use them. My dad, in fact, who wasn't 200 years old, had a scar on his eye where a doctor had left a leech on a bit too long trying to fix a black eye. Yes, that was the kind of background I had. He told it to these waters he had come to gather leeches, being old and poor, employment hazardous and wearisome. And he had many hardships to endure. From pond to pond he roamed from moor to moor, Housing with God's good help, by choice or chance, so he slept wherever he could. And in this way, he gained an honest maintenance. So that's his job. He collects leeches and then sells them. And often leech gatherers, what they would do was stand in a, in a pool with their trousers rolled up and let the leeches attach to their um, calves and feet. And then they'd get out and prise them off and put them in a jar. It's great work. So anyway, that's 
the old man's answer. Still no direct speech, you'll, you'll notice. And he had many hardships to endure, from pond to pond, he roamed from moor to moor. OK. The old man still stood talking by my side. But now his voice to me was like a stream, scarce heard, nor word from word could I divide. And the whole body of the man did seem like one whom I had met with in a dream, or like a man from some far region sent to give me human strength by apt admonishment. So... The old man still stood talking by my side, but now his voice to me was like a stream scarce heard. It's a strange sort of filmic technique that Wordsworth uses here. So we have a sense of the old man talking, but we don't know what he's saying because the speaker isn't hearing him. The speaker is giving us a sort of voiceover where he talks about the effect that this man is having on him and why he thinks he might have been sent to sort of admonish him, to tell him off in some way. So the speaker, this poet, is still the subject of this. This is how it's affected me, he's saying. We, we can't even hear what the old guy is saying. That's been blotted out. So the, the speaker is continuing to write the old man to make him what he needs him to be. My former thoughts returned, the fear that kills, and hope that is unwilling to be fed. Remember all those dark thoughts he had. Cold pain and labour, and all fleshly ills, and mighty poets in their misery dead. So the melodrama bounces back. Perplexed and longing to be comforted, my question eagerly did I renew. How is it that you live and what is it you do? Now, about four stanzas earlier, he said, what occupation do you there pursue? And he's had a perfectly legible answer from the old guy. He collects leeches, he moves from place to place doing it. Sometimes he has to sleep rough, sometimes he gets somewhere, depending whether God's smiling on him that day or not. So we've had, we know the answer. The poet speaker clearly was not listening to the old man. He's so wrapped in himself. So now he asks this guy, what is it that you do, when he's just told him? He with a smile did then his words repeat. So his ego, the old man's ego, is kind of untroubled, it seems, by just being ignored like this. It's, it's like that he's so wise, he understands this young, passionate, self-absorbed man. He with a smile did then his words repeat and said that gathering leeches far and wide he travelled, Stirring thus about his feet the waters of the pools where they abide. And now he actually speaks in quotation marks. Once I could meet with them on every side, but they have dwindled long by slow decay. Yet still I persevere and find them where I may. So 
even this awful job is getting harder and leeches are getting harder to find. That's the headline. Yet still I persevere. That seems to be the key thing here. This poet, this melodramatic young man who felt so sorry for himself, worrying about misery and poverty that hasn't yet come but might, meets this very, very old bent man who's got a horrible job that's getting more and more horrible and still he perseveres. While he was talking thus, the lonely place, the old man's shape and speech all troubled me. He's not listening. He's still not really listening, is he? He's responding internally to this guy, just to the look and the feel of him and the lonely place. While he was talking thus, the lonely place, the old man's shape and speech all troubled me. In my mind's eye, I seemed to see him pace about the weary moors continually, wandering about alone and silently. Yet you don't have to see that in your mind's eye. He's there at the moment. You can see and you can communicate with him. While I have these thoughts within myself pursued, he, having made a pause, the same discourse renewed. So again, he's not listening to the old man, but the old man continues to try and communicate through the haze of the poet's ego. And now we get to the last stanza. And soon with this, he other matter blended. So he spoke about other stuff as well. Cheerfully uttered with demeanour kind. So he's a really nice old fella. But stately in the main. So he has a, a sort of dignity about him. And when he ended, I could have laughed myself to scorn to find in that decrepit man so firm a mind. God, said I, be my help and stay secure. Stay as in the noun stay, I think it means help and aid. God, said I, be my help and stay secure. I'll think of the leech gatherer on the lonely moor. So he has met this guy and the guy who perseveres against all the odds, age, infirmity, poverty, homelessness and the great leech shortage of the 1790s, early 1800s. And he thinks, yes, I'll learn from this guy. So he's, he has kind of reduced him to a lesson. We don't really feel we know the old man. He probably told us some really interesting autobiographical facts. But that was happening while the speaker poet was in one of his um, hazy internal meditations. So... That's the lesson that he draws, to persevere, to remain cheerful when and if hardship comes. It's a sort of poem as a self-help book. And the messages are that storms don't last forever. Avoid self-pity and just keep paddling. 
things are going to be okay. There is a theory, if you're interested in some biographical background, that William Wordsworth wrote this partly for his friend Coleridge when Coleridge was particularly low and particularly feeling sorry for himself and suffering and talking about all the anguish and pain he felt as a poet and as an artist. And Wordsworth gave him this and said, think on, probably. I love it, I must say. I I don't mean to be derogatory of it when I say, oh, he ignores the old man and that. This is why I think the speaker isn't Wordsworth. I think Wordsworth is showing a young poet feeling sorry for himself not really hearing what this old man says not really interested in his story but at least ultimately coming out with some sort of life lesson so Wordsworth is able to stand back create a self-pitying poet put him in the company of this old man who we never really get to meet but at least allow him to come away with a moral, with a life lesson, with some resolution and independence, as the title of the poem says, that he might take with him on his poetic way. Thank you for listening to my poetry podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you can never miss an episode. Imagine that. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. Uh, Less poetic, probably funnier. See you next time.